Over the last few years, how we see and use storage has gone through a major transformation. We no longer carry around those bulky hard drives and we're less concerned about running out of space. Instead, we simply upload everything to the cloud. It's an invisible, broad infrastructure that feels never-ending and sometimes appears too good to be true. It's a dream come true for most people. But for someone like John Davis, the vice president of public sector at Palo Alto Networks, the cloud isn't this amazing, perfect thing. Quite the opposite, in fact. Instead, John sees a technology littered with unknowns and filled with potential threats. On this episode of IT Visionaries, John returns for his second appearance on the show, and he updates us on his new role, what some of the best practices are for preventing data breaches, and he tells us why zero trust isn't just a buzzword. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, and we are joined today by special guest. We brought him back again. Uh, the interview so nice, we had to do it twice here. John, how are you? I'm doing great, Ian. Uh, I really enjoyed the last time. I thought you had some great questions, and I'm looking forward to round two and honored to, to be asked back. Yeah, and we are, we're super excited to have you back, telling, uh, telling some of the fun stories of your, of your time in the Army and, uh, and Cyber Command. Uh, we know our listeners really like that. And this time, you know, we wanted to get into more of what you're doing at Palo Alto Networks. For those of our listeners who don't know, you know, you're the vice president of public sector. Uh, what does that mean? What's, what does your kind of work entail? If I boiled it down to a sentence, Ian, it would be the same thing that I described to you in our, in our last podcast. And that is my job is to go out and create and maintain trusted advisory relationships with leaders in organizations, both the public and the private sector around the world, and to help them with their cybersecurity challenges so that they can fight this this very serious cyber threat that we all face. So let's, you know, we're in 2020 now. We have a lot of of technology leaders that, you know, are listening to the show, thinking about data breaches, thinking about data breaches data breach prevention. What are some of those best practices that you're seeing? Um, What are some of the things that people are doing uh, or that companies should be doing to prevent data breach? All right. Well, um, just to remind you, the last time we spoke about this, and I'm going to give you an update on it, by the way, but the last time we spoke about best practices, I talked about four things. One, basics matter. Just doing the basic standards, discipline, hygiene, whatever you want to call it, that to me actually makes it very difficult for 80 to 90% of any type of cyber threat to get through and be successful. Now, the second was about a mindset, and that was a prevention mindset. Not that detection and response and remediation and resilience and all those things, not that they're not important, they're definitely important. But if you have a prevention mindset, then for that remaining 10 to 20%, it allows you to deal much more effectively with with the threat that remains that can get through the basics. And it allows you to uh, reduce the workload 
for detection, response, remediation, uh, et cetera. Uh, the third was, was better use of some of the innovations that are out in the industry now, automation, software-based advanced analytics like machine learning, uh, big data analytics, deep learning, behavior, behavioral analytics, and eventually as you wrap all that stuff into the term called artificial intelligence, AI. But it's really about fighting machines and software, which is what the threat is today with machines and software. And the fourth was about understanding how threats operate. And this, these were the steps in the attack process so that you can really give the defender an opportunity to see and stop a threat as, as it goes through that process before it reaches the successful conclusion. I think those are still best practices. But what I'm seeing today is kind of, a, I'll rephrase uh, how to look at those. It's all wrapped up in, in the successful organizations that I talk to today. I'm seeing a move away from three different legacy type approaches to cybersecurity towards modern innovative approaches. First one is moving away from an over-reliance on people. Not that people aren't important, they, people are still critical, but moving away from an over-reliance on them to one where we're leveraging, you know, what I mentioned just a minute ago, machines and software uh, in order to fight machines and software and saving your people for more high-end roles. Because we, you know, I think last time we also talked about this shortage of people in the cybersecurity industry. It's in the millions by various estimates, but they all say, you know, millions. We're never going to fill all those positions. So we got to figure out a different way to use our people in a more effective way and actually reduce the number of positions that we need to be effective. This is one way to do it. The second uh, is to move away from a, an approach that, that many organizations unfortunately still do. And that's, you know, from the outside in, building a strong perimeter and then assuming that everything inside that perimeter is secure. It's just not anymore. There are too many ways for the threat to get around, you know, the traditional moat. And so moving from that type of approach to one that's more of an inside out. And I know we'll talk about this later, but that's essentially what zero trust, the zero trust concept is about. And understanding the way modern, modern technology works in an, in an enterprise IT environment, and that's, it's not based on where traffic is coming from and going to, you know, the traditional port and protocol. It's based on what users are doing with applications, content, data, and devices. That's the way that you have to build the zero trust approach. And then the last thing I would say is a move away from the traditional on-premises or on-prem type environments where all your stuff is physical and it's there and it's stationary. Everybody's moving to the cloud of some type, public, private, hybrid, multi-cloud, SaaS. The really good organizations are leveraging innovations that are happening now in cloud capabilities and making it so that you know, there used to be a big fear about cloud. I think it's actually a more secure environment if you do things right. And, and the, the organizations that I talk to that are successful are increasingly doing things right. Yeah, let's, let's start with that then. What are organizations doing right? Because you know, we have talked extensively over the last you know, 150 plus episodes about cloud, about 
how many folks are moving from, you know, have some sort of uh, cloud capability now. Um, you know, we we recently spoke with uh, some senior leaders that are 100% all cloud now that have zero on-prem anymore. Uh, and then some of the companies that are kind of like younger and built in the cloud, obviously, you know, don't really have anything on-prem. So um, this is obviously something that everyone needs to secure how much do the cloud providers secure versus things that you need to secure yourself? Well, um, there is what we call a shared security model. I'll describe that in a minute, but first let me just, let me talk about, you know, the risks associated with the cloud. There, there are risks, even though what I said before was cloud is becoming more and more secure, just like everything, there are risks, including the cloud. The innovation that's that's been taking place recently around cloud technologies, I think it's very important to talk about that. And I think you know that this idea of moving away from the legacy on-prem to cloud, that that azimuth is we're not going to change it. And the reason is because it, it offers cloud offers immense advantages in scale, speed, and cost. And those are things that you know, when it comes to decision-making in any organization, including government and military organizations, those are important decision factors. So when a, an organization is, you know, on its journey to the cloud, they have to deal with access, connecting users and transport data to and from the cloud. It's SaaS applications, you know, software as a service applications to discover and control the use of third-party apps that might be running in the cloud. And increasingly today, it's about cloud applications, you know, things that are, that are designed, built, deployed, and run in the cloud. And if you look at how, you know, cloud's defining how apps are built now, eight out of 10 enterprise apps today are cloud-enabled or cloud-native. One out of two enterprises will use containers this year in the cloud. And about a fifth of the organizations that, that we're aware of uh, we'll be embracing serverless computing for cloud this year. And I think, I think it was Gartner that had a, a recent report that said over 80% of cloud users are leveraging two or more cloud providers, which means most organizations are multi-cloud. And we're finding most organizations are also pursuing hybrid solutions. So part on-prem, part cloud of varying types, including this, what I described a minute ago about multi-cloud environments. So here are the key challenges. When you're looking at all these dynamics, these are the challenges when it comes to managing risks in the cloud. Number one, you can't see everything, lack of visibility. Number two, a lot of technology was originally built in isolation. So there's the fragmentation of the tools available to effectively manage risk in the cloud. Compliance. Compliance isn't security, but compliance is a, is a big factor, a required factor for a lot of organizations. And so, and it can be very, very complex in a cloud environment. So organizations are struggling with that. And the cloud itself, as I mentioned before, speed is a challenge just because things happen very, very quickly and, and, and very, in a very agile way in the cloud. And then detecting and responding to threats effectively and efficiently is a challenge. And so, you can't just, you know, in the military term, lift and shift your on-prem security approach and use it in the cloud because, you know, it's a very different challenge in a very different environment. Yeah. So uh, we have a threat intelligence unit, Unit 42, and according to them, these are some of the things that people are dealing with in terms of vulnerabilities and risks. 24% of exposed public cloud hosts have known vulnerabilities. 
28% of organizations that we know of communicate with known malicious command and control domains. Two more numbers, 51% of exposed containers use default insecure configurations. And get this, 65% of reported cloud incidents were due to customer misconfigurations. So, you know, getting back to this, the question you asked about who's responsible for what, in a shared security model, mo most people think, hey, if I'm going to use a cloud service provider, they've gotten really good at securing the cloud. And only part of that statement is true. They have definitely gotten very good at securing what they're responsible for, which is the infrastructure of the cloud but it's still the customer organization's responsibility to secure their apps and their data, as well as what their users are, are doing in the cloud and which devices are accessing the cloud. And so that's hard work, and that's where a company like mine comes in to help you secure uh, what goes into and comes out of the cloud, to control which users are using which apps for which functions, with what you know content or data, and from which devices, whether that's the security of workloads, containers, in serverless environments, or even the, the challenges with, you know, with devices. Obviously, we have strong technical partnerships with companies like Amazon's AWS and Microsoft's Azure cloud capabilities to help our clients execute the cloud shared security model effectively. And then last month, we just announced a strategic partnership with Google Cloud Platform so that we can jointly work to improve both ends of the shared security model. We can help them in their effort to secure the cloud infrastructure, and they can partner solutions with us to help us do our job helping the, the organizations that are our clients secure you know, their, their users, their, their applications, their data and content, and their devices. Yeah, I, and I didn't know about the Google piece. That That's really interesting. Um, I'm curious, so... I know you work with obviously a lot of enterprise companies um, for companies that are cloud native that, you know, kind of rely on the security of those cloud providers. Is there any changes or have you have you worked with, you know, larger companies that are are that are 100 percent cloud native? I'd imagine there's not, you know, yet that many that are that are really large that are truly enterprise um, I know there's, there's some, and we've interviewed a few of those CIOs on the show. Um, but I'm curious, have you, have you worked with any of those folks? Me personally? No. Every organization that I work with is either multi-cloud. Well, they're multi-cloud and they are hybrid. So they're especially government organizations, military organizations. I think for the foreseeable future, they're going to be partially on-prem, for functions that they just believe are so sensitive and they, they need the additional eyes on security in their own environment, an environment that they can control, at least until they get gain the confidence level to be able to do some of those kinds of functions in a cloud environment. And even in a cloud environment, it's going to be private cloud for them, much like CIA did a long time ago. Yeah. For me, for the customers I deal with, it's multi-cloud and hybrid and and I don't see that changing in the near term, maybe maybe in the in the far term or the longer term, but not not anytime soon. Yeah. And the reason that I ask is, you know, obviously we're we're based here in Silicon Valley and um, a lot of the startups that, you know, we talk to, especially, you know, the the kind of hyper growth startups, you know, cloud is just such an easy way to scale for them. Uh, and not have to kind of worry about anything. But, you know, at some point those companies grow up, right? And like, you know, uh, after a few years, and especially with a bunch of capital injection, 
you know, those companies who don't traditionally have a a CISO, you know, or uh, or maybe they don't even have a CIO. Like some of those companies, you know, that we've interviewed, you know, are you know, 100 employees or something like that and don't really think about security nearly as much as they should probably. I, I'm just curious, like, what is the future for those those kind of companies from a security standpoint? Well, uh, my advice would be you need to consider security because it's going to impact your business. I mean, it's not just security for security's sake. It's security for material impact to the business. That's what organizations are really you know, concerned about, especially in the decision making about resources. So maybe they've been lucky and haven't had a material breach that has impacted the business you know, in some terrible way. It's going to be a really bad day if, if they're not considering security and that does happen. And I just think it would be much smarter to be proactive in this and to consider these security functions, especially, you know, given this shared security model, no cloud provider is going to be able to do everything for you at the, at the level required to keep out sophisticated threats. Because if you're not controlling what your users are doing with the applications and the data and devices and the content and devices, if you're not controlling that, then it's invisible to the organization and the cloud service providers. They're not going to see that either. That's not their responsibility. So I would encourage them to be proactive in, in baking security into that model. Yeah, that's a great point. What, and actually maybe expand on that a little bit. Like, what do you think? And I know you're not, you know, you don't work for them, but what do you think that the cloud providers, where do you think that they perceive their relationship stops or their footprint stops um, or just, where does it stop? Because that's a good point about, you know, all of uh, all of your systems. The other thing that I, I always think about, too, and this is kind of a two part question, but like, you know, as you're using, I don't know, startup technology du jour, uh, that's, you know, fast growth, you know, young, you know, startup, you know, 15 employees and, uh, you know, raised a bunch of money from somebody and, uh, you know, flying by the seat of their pants a little bit, but a really good technology. There's threats there too, obviously, uh, if they don't have, you know, security. And that's kind of what we were talking about with all of these applications, all of these digital tools, all of the things that are kind of swipe your credit card and go, you know, how, how at risk are you in the, in those scenarios? I think you are definitely at risk if you don't ensure that you have very detailed conversations with your cloud security provider about just what they believe this shared security model means in very specific terms. They should be asking them, what are you doing to protect the infrastructure that you're responsible for protecting? You know, I, I would get very detailed in terms of finding out exactly what it is that they do. And by the way, they do a very good job of that. Most cloud security providers, especially the big ones, have all gotten very good at infrastructure security, even though each of their infrastructure is different and it requires different technical solutions to secure it. They they have done a very good job, in my opinion. But you know, then you got to pursue the discussion about where does your responsibility end and mine begin as an organization? Uh, how do how how do we manage the risk at those handoff points? And then you ask them, well, where you're not responsible for security of some aspect, like perhaps data or devices, what do you recommend I do as a company to ensure that if I don't have the in-house capability to to be able to manage that risk, where are there capabilities such as Palo Alto Networks that, that does provide? Because we've got relationships with all the major 
major uh, cloud security providers. So, so they would be prepared to answer your questions if you were talking about us. With other companies, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have insight into that. I would assume it's the same type of thing because so many security companies are partnering with the cloud uh, service providers to provide solutions. But and I can only talk about the way we approach it. But our approach is essentially to be able to give you continuous, complete, and most importantly, consistent visibility and protections so that in a cloud environment, everything that you you are responsible for doing in a cloud environment that you would be responsible for doing in your own on-prem physical environment, we give you the capability to do that in the cloud environment by working out the technically engineered solutions with the cloud security provider, as well as working out the you know fine granular control over uh, and we'll talk about zero trust in a minute but this this is applying zero trust in the cloud environment so that you know exactly which users are allowed to do and you have policies to control it which things using which applications with which data or content from which devices you can see that in a consistent way even if you have a hybrid environment and you're doing you're doing the same thing in your on-prem as you're doing in your cloud, you do it the same way with the same visibility and, and controlling it with the same pane of glass, essentially. But that's what it takes to be, to be really good at cloud security in general. Let's get into zero trust. For listeners who don't know what zero trust is, is it like, what is it? Is it a, is it a mindset? Is it a philosophy? Is it an approach? Like what, what is zero trust? Well, um, I'm fortunate that we, the founder of the Zero Trust concept, John Kindervog, when he was at Forrester, came to Palo Alto Networks a couple of years ago as our field chief technology officer. And I've had a chance to have a lot of conversations with John, so learning from the master never hurts. And, I, and I'm sure I'll, I will try to channel John as best I can. I know he'll probably end up listening to this, so, and he'll give me corrective feedback if I don't get this right, I'm sure. To me, zero trust is a journey. It, you know, it's not an end state because it's something that you, you have to continue to iterate on. You have to continue to innovate on. Zero trust is, you know, the motto, trust nothing, verify everything, as opposed to Reagan's, you know, trust but verify, referring to the you know, old agreement with the Soviet Union on nuclear weapons. This is back to that move away from the legacy approach that says, Focus on your perimeter and trust everything that's inside it. You can't trust everything that's inside it. So zero trust, the, the approach to zero trust then is to build your architecture from the inside out. And step one means what's important to protect. Not You can't protect everything everywhere. You'll be weak everywhere. So you focus on what's most important to an organization. John calls it the protect surface. In the military, we had a similar concept. It was called cyber key terrain. So it was a mapping of your most critical functions as a military organization to those, you know, networks, systems, data, even people in the organization. So you could prioritize your resources and your capabilities around that. So you could protect what was most important. So figuring that out is step one. And in every organization, that's going to be different. But then once you once you start there, then it's about a journey. And, and the journey, we, we have a, what we call a maturity model. There are different versions of it, but the lessons that we've learned about over the past couple of years in helping organizations build zero trust networks and architectures, 
a couple of lessons. Number one, there's no one size fits all, no cookie cutter or silver bullet approach because it's a process and it's based on very individual aspects that each organization is going to have. The next lesson that we learned is that it's about this maturity model idea. And we have seen that the first 80% of the journey to get to a zero trust architecture, it deals with what I talked about earlier, identifying applications, identifying users, putting the users in small functional buckets, authorizing applications for each bucket, and deploying the user policy for all the buckets. It's easy to say that, very difficult to do that, but that's the next step after you have identified what's important to protect. And we think that gets you about 80% of the way there. The next, to get to the 90% solution, now you gotta do that with devices. You have gotta identify devices. You gotta put each device into small functional buckets. You, then you gotta define which buckets can talk to each other. And then you deploy you know, the data device bucket policies. And you never get to 100% because your technology is gonna change, your enterprise environment's gonna change, your users, devices, data, content's going to change, and the threat's going to change. So, you know, what you get to is a point where you can manage risks because it's never going to be a, a trusted environment. That's the concept. It's zero trust. But you manage the risk by breaking things down into these small components and focusing your priority and your efforts and your technologies around those smallest components. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that that I found super interesting about this, you know, for some some stats for the audience here, 80% of data breaches are caused by misuse of privileged credentials. And and of those, you know, you're roughly talking about a negligent insider can cost an organization uh, on average of 285,000 per incident. So you're talking about folks within the organization that are don't mean to be doing the things that they're doing. Um you inherently trust those people to be employees as a leader, but you know, from a security standpoint, that doesn't mean that you should trust them. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll even add to, you know, to the discussion about why this is so important in today's world. I think you remember last time when we talked about uh, the unprecedented growth in, in modern technology, uh, information technology, operational technology, and even IoT, the Internet of Things, were connecting everyone and everything together. You know, all the unprecedented economic and social benefits that that brings everyone, meaning, you know, nobody's going to turn back on this, this direction. It's going to continue. But the dark side, the threats, the risks, the dangers, with IoT, with the expansion of all these devices and the data, with the introduction of 5G, the speed of connections, and with the threats embracing this automation and software-based advanced analytics, the size and scope of what we call the attack surface is already growing exponentially. But it's not just speed and scale that's the problem. It's also about the consequences, the impact. Because, you know, remember last time we talked about we're connecting mass transportation systems and life-sustaining devices to the environment? Yeah. And I, I told you last time, this worried me, and it wasn't hyperbole to say that we're putting people's lives at risk at both a, an individual level as well as in mass. Absolutely. And that's why zero trust is so important in the kind of world that we increasingly find ourselves. And, you know, especially the complex nature of, of this, this environment that's no longer 
just physical fixed and on-prem that, that is now in you know, cloud and, and endpoints and just all over the place. So to me, that is why this concept of zero trust is so important. It's important to national and international security. It's also important in every, in, in every organization's business. So it is something that I believe is critically important to the future. One of the facets of this is obviously AI and machine learning, which we talk about a lot on the show. And it is something that, you know, AI and machine learning means a million different things. So um, speaking about it broadly and generally, there's obviously millions of complications with how AI and machine learning will work within network security and uh, and affect security teams. How do you think that security teams should be looking at AI and machine learning? How do you think that it'll change the way that they operate? Well, this is once again, part of the move away from legacy approaches, i.e. people in a very reactive human-based response to machine software and, and preventative and automated approaches. For me, it gets back to understanding that cyber threat attack process, which we discussed last time. And, and this is why I think from a security perspective, the use of automation and software-based advanced analytics can level the playing field between offense and defense. And even, I believe, give temporary advantages to the defense uh, when you can see and stop threats at one or more of those steps in the attack process before it can achieve a successful attack. So I believe it holds promise to enable prevention of most attacks, and where it can't, it still can limit the impact or damage in the least. So even in the modern challenge we have today with this more complex enterprise environment with cloud, IoT, 5G, virtual capabilities, uh, mobile, even, even in that complex environment. So, th But the only way to see and stop a threat before it's successful is with, you know, as I mentioned before, and I think I mentioned this in our last podcast, you got to have that complete, continuous, and consistent visibility and protections across the entire landscape. And if you're not, it's got to all be integrated together. Otherwise, you're looking through this very complex threat you know, you're looking at it through individual soda straws and you're only getting bits and pieces, which require more and more people to integrate and orchestrate. So the way you have to take this approach towards automation and software-based advanced analytics is a package approach to combine all these individual technologies. And they were all originally created to solve only one piece of the problem, you know, one step in the attack process. And you got to combine that into a more holistic technical package. And doing that requires automation and making sense of the data at scale and at the speed required to stop a highly automated threat. That also requires the use of software-based advanced analytics, like big data analytics, machine learning, especially unstructured or unsupervised machine learning, where you have enough of the right kind of data to be able to just tell the software, you don't have to tell it what to look for, you feed it the right kind of data and it learns on its own. And I put all that under the umbrella of AI, which, you know, we're all working towards. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think one of the challenges here, you know, and we've talked about AI and machine learning, you know, a bunch on the show, is just kind of a, from a, you know, blocking and tackling standpoint, like just budgeting, right? Is if your CISO needs to build a machine learning uh, team, if your CIO does, if your CTO does, if your chief digital officer does, or your marketing lead uh, CMO does, you know, at a certain point, you're kind of in this tough position where 
these folks are really expensive to hire and to build. I know we're saying that it's like a it's it's a necessary thing to go forward. Is there kind of like a buyer build scenario here, or can you build like a cross functional team? I'm just curious what type of best practices you've seen there. Well, what what I'm seeing, Ian, is a lot of organizations getting out of the business of building it and buying it because industry has begun to see the value in integrating and orchestrating all this stuff for you. Remember last time I talked about, you know, used to be security organizations, if you compare them to building an automobile, they would go out to a hundred different auto parts stores and buy parts and bring them back, try to figure out how to make them work together to, to build a car instead of going to dealership and buying a car that was custom built for your need. Industry out there, the cybersecurity industry is beginning to build these dealerships where the best in breed out there for any one particular function realizes it's just one particular function. Unless it can work together, unless it can be interoperable with other things that are required, other capabilities that are required to be effective in this very complex you know, enterprise environment, that's not the model of, of the future. The model of the future is integrated products, interoperable products, more use of an open API architecture for software-based capabilities. For example, in our company, we believe we have so much data from you know, more than 67,000 clients, client organizations uh, in more than 150 countries around the world, That's, that translates to billions of users. We're collecting all of this data it's indicators of compromise and it's contextual information. It's not PII. It's not, you know, not the, the stuff that triggers liability and security concern or privacy concerns. But it's that kind of data to the tune of petabytes. Well, our model is, and I, and I think there are a growing number of companies that realize this, is with all that data from the right places, from enterprises, from cloud environments, from endpoints, from IoT, devices. With all that data, if we open that up through an open API you know, model, and we even allow third parties, competitors, organizations, if they want to build their own security function as, as a software package, if we open that up and allow, so if you're a company and you have Palo Alto Networks, but you also have Fortinet, well, you want to keep your Fortinet because you like what you're getting. And well, we believe we should open up our database to that capability. If it's employed as software, you know, not hardware, but software capability to run whatever function it is, behavior analytics, traditional perimeter security, data center security, endpoint security, whatever it is, we believe that's the model of the future because all this stuff has to work together. And the more that we can make it easy for our customers to do that, to let us do that for them, the more we think in the end that they're going to find value in that. Even if it's with competitors in the, in the same environment, even if they're building their own types of capabilities like government tends to like to do and integrating that, you know, and, and running that on top of our data as software as a security service, that kind of a model. So we see that as the, the way of the future and, and we're trying to make that a reality. We have made that a reality. And it's not just with network security. We believe the same model applies to security operation centers and the analytic work that people, that SOC analysts have to do in terms of, you know, detection, investigation, automation, and response capabilities. 
We think all that ought to be automated and it ought to be an open architecture where if you want to use a third party or competitor capability in your environment and we've got the ability to stitch that together, which we do under, you know, SOAR, security orchestration automation and response capabilities, then fine. We don't care. What we care about is making it as easy and agile as possible for the client because otherwise you're never going to get out of this people problem. And that's what we're trying to help organizations get out of, which, which is, by the way, is where they spend most of their money is, is on people. Yeah, absolutely. It is a, it's a, <laughs> it's a precarious world in, uh, in, in IT and, uh, and cybersecurity for that exact reason, that you can't just kind of keep throwing bodies at it when the attackers aren't going to do that. You know what I mean? They're going to find the cheapest option as well to, uh, to do what they're doing. Absolutely. That's what's happening on the threat side. Okay. So final question before we get into just some additional lightning round questions. Uh, Palo Alto Networks is a military friendly employer. Obviously, you know, we were both army guys. Uh, I think you uh, outranked me by uh, <laughs> by a little bit as a <laughs> retired uh, ma- uh, major general. Um, I was just a lowly captain and a staff captain a lot too. So really, just uh, taking my beatings. Hey, I but, had my best times as a captain. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, it's just just enough rank to get in trouble, but uh, but not too much trouble. You got to get in trouble a little bit. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. I. Uh, I'll. I'll never forget the. Uh, I was. I on occasion would do the uh, reply all with uh, <laughs> with all the leadership team on there. Uh, you know, you got to speak truth to power, as they say. Um, that's one of the things about I think about vets that is that is really cool is you know this kind of disciplined mindset, but also uh, the creative side, the technical side, the ability to. Sp- speak truth to power. Um, there's a lot of skills that I think people don't really realize, you know, veterans have, uh, and specifically in cybersecurity and IT, where there are people in the military that focus on those things. But there's also a lot of people in the military, like me, who didn't specifically work on those things, but had a lot of skills because of such an advanced threat level, you know, having a secret or top secret security clearance, um, understanding how, you know, security works and, and, and safety and all those sort of things. So you kind of have it baked in. Um, I'm curious, why do you think veterans are well positioned to pursue a career in cybersecurity? And, and uh, what are you excited about for, for Palo Alto Networks to be able to hire those folks? I think the last time we talked, I, I talked about why I believe cybersecurity, much like the military, is a calling of great importance, you know, a mission of great consequence and not just a job. Given some of the dramatic implications of the threats and risks and consequences that we talked about earlier, and it's only becoming more and more important. You can take the situation with Iran recently as just an example. I believe that the values and skills that I've learned from my own service in the military have served me well in my continuing cyber role in industry. And as you mentioned, you know, the military teaches all veterans about a number of things that I think are are important and translate to this particular industry. And that's leadership, discipline, a very healthy respect for threats and a real understanding of how threats operate in this environment, teaches you precision and execution, teaches you how to learn lessons from training repetitively and then fixing those things that went wrong. Uh, teaches you how to manage risks and how to make hard decisions of great consequence. And it teaches you how to think on your feet. 
I think all of those are very important in the field of cybersecurity, and I think they certainly translate directly to that which is required to excel in the field of cybersecurity. Uh, at Palo Alto Networks, we have a veterans network. I've been a, me- a mentor, as have others in the company, to, to about a dozen vets, uh, and it's my honor to, to do that. We believe in attracting vets to the cybersecurity industry, and we recently uh, rebranded our, our veterans training program. It's called Second Watch uh, as a free training and certification program. Uh, we also have effective partnerships with other organizations like Vets in Tech, Onward to Opportunity with the Virginia and Maryland state governments, and I think with an increasing number of state governments, uh, to help create pipelines in, into our Second Watch program. And in 2016, going all the way back to, you know, shortly after I joined the, the company, I had a chance to represent our company at the White House under the Joining Forces program and pledged to train 400 vets by 2020 under this free, you know, training and certification program. And we exceeded that goal last year, and, and we continue to move forward. So I, I'm very proud of what we're doing. It's, it's not enough. You know, 400 trained vets is, is a drop in the bucket for what's needed. But I am very proud of what the company is doing, you know, doing its part. That's awesome to hear. And, uh, and we'll definitely link up, you know, those things so, so folks, uh, folks on here, leaders, can, can point, um, point people in the direction of those training and opportunities because uh, – yeah, they're truly life-changing. And I've, I've talked to a bunch of folks that have been through them and uh, it can give you kind of that mission and that purpose for, for some work that's really rewarding. So kudos to the entire team at Palo Alto Networks and, you know, the military leadership, former military leadership that, uh, that were able to facilitate some of those things. All right, let's get into our lightning round. We've done this before already. So we're just going to do a couple questions. As always, the lightning round is brought to you by our friends at Salesforce. The Salesforce Customer 360 platform is the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more. We love Salesforce. Check them out at salesforce.com slash platform. Lightning round questions. John, are you ready? I hope so. <laughs> number one, what is your favorite animal? Oh, wow. Well, I, I have to tell you that I live now out in, you know, in the middle of nowhere and our property, we have deer, squirrel, hawks, uh, raccoons, possum, vultures, wild turkey. Uh, I love them all. I mean, it's just great. We have, we've set up a trail cam. Oh, yeah. And we, we occasionally put food out and we watch them all. It's, it's amazing. They all seem to get along. You'd think they'd kill each other, but they, and they do fight and they chase each other, but they seem to figure out a way to survive together. We even have a bear that occasionally, a black bear, that occasionally wanders through, you know, the, the area, uh, which we've caught on camera before. It just, it amazes us at watching the, the trail cam footage of, of these, these various critters all potentially life-threatening to each other, but somehow figuring out a way to get along. That's pretty amazing. Well, I'm going to need to check my uh, check my email in case I missed an invite because I needed an invite to see uh, to see this uh, the cacophony of uh, of animal behavior that's going on. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to send you some various clips. Of course, my wife has named all of these animals. They all have names. So, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we uh, we've talked about raccoons extensively on this on this program, and uh, my my girlfriend names all of the uh, the squirrels in our backyard and the raccoons uh, that that transverse our uh, our fence in the back. So I'm I'm right there with you. Hey, there's a skunk also, and nobody likes him. 
Uh, that's it. That's the only lightning round question for today. Uh, John, thanks so much for, for coming on the show again, as always, uh, you know, we're, we're super excited to, to have you every time our, uh, cyber, our cyber security correspondent, uh, and, uh, and I've really appreciate it. My pleasure, Ian. Thank you very much. Take care. IT visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce customer 360 platform the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. <laughs>